We started out in the book of Habakkuk last week, and we will be there again today. So if you want to start looking for it in your Bible, uh, go for it. Um, I don't know that if you've seen, probably the teenagers probably have, maybe young adults have, maybe some of you that aren't on the internet as, as much have seen this, but there seems to be a bridge somewhere. I think it's over in Asia, somewhere like that. It's like an all-glass walking bridge. Like the sides are glass, you know, the bottom is glass, and it's up high, all right? And so people can walk across this bridge, but at least the videos that I've seen, whoever built this bridge... Um, has a, a weird sense of humor because in some of these glass panels on the ground, there seems to be some sort of display. And when somebody steps on it, it actually looks like it cracks and it makes that noise, or that cracking sound. All right. And so there is video of people walking across this bridge and they hit this panel and the crack and the noise and they freak out. Like they just start like grabbing for things and laying down flat and whatever. But... <clears throat> And it's funny to watch. I mean, I'd, I'd hate for it to be me uh, to find out that way, but it, it's funny to watch. So if you go online and, and find that video, it's funny to watch their, their unexpected uh, reaction, right? You're walking on a bridge. This is the last thing that you would expect. And as we start out in the book of Habakkuk, as we get into it today, Habakkuk gets something that he does not expect. He gets a response from God he does not expect. And so today we're going to look at how he reacts to that. But first of all, we're going to do by a bit of a review. Uh, last week we started in Habakkuk chapter 1. So I got a few review questions up here. Um, we could take a volunteer. Does somebody want to volunteer to try to answer a question? Or do we just want to do it as a group? Come on, they're not that difficult. Uh, even if you weren't here last week, you might be able to get these ones. All right. All right, maybe we'll just do it as a group, okay? Since nobody's raising their hand to volunteer, I don't see any volunteers. All right, first question, why is Habakkuk known as a minor prophet? Is it because he was younger than 18? Because his book is relatively short? Or he enjoyed digging for gold? All right, which one, number two? All right, there you go. His book is relatively short, so he is known as one of the minor prophets. There's a group of 12 of them near the end of the Old Testament. All right, second question, why, what was Habakkuk's complaint to God? We talked about Habakkuk's initial complaint that he had to God. Was it, number one, there was a food shortage? Number two, Israel's unpunished wickedness? Or number three, the price of a new camel had skyrocketed? <laughs> All right, somebody said number three. All right. <laughs> the answer is number two, Israel's unpunished wickedness. All right. He, he comes to God, Habakkuk comes to God and says, hey, I'm looking all around me and all I see is wickedness. Nobody is, nobody is following God's law, not even the leadership, and I don't see an end to it. And I don't see God doing anything. What are you doing, God? Where are you? Are you even there? Are you even listening? All right. That was Habakkuk's complaint in the beginning of his book. All right. Final question, how did God respond to Habakkuk's complaint? He said he would send a revival to Israel. He said he was busy with other complaints. Or he said he would send evil Babylon to punish them. Number three, all right, he would send evil Babylon to punish them. God responds to Habakkuk's cries and pleas and prayers and complaint by saying, you know what, I'm going to send evil, wicked Babylon to take care of this. I'll, I'll punish that wickedness. I'll punish Israel's wick wickedness. 
and I'm going to send Babylon to do it. And so today, as we come to uh, Habakkuk 1 verse 12, beginning with verse 12, Habakkuk lodges a second complaint. But before we get into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you uh, again for your word. God, we thank you that we could be here this morning to worship you. And so now as we look into your word, Father, we just ask that, that you might bring your word alive to us. Father, help, help this uh, word from you to be an encouragement to those who need encouraging here today. Lord, let it be a challenge to those who need to be challenged here today. Lord, let it be a strengthening and growing time for those who need growth. But Father, most of all, we pray that it is a time of honoring you and worshiping you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so as we come to verse 12, God said he was raising, God told Habakkuk he was raising up Babylon to punish his people Israel. And this twist is not what Habakkuk expected. After Habakkuk had just voiced his concerns as to whether or not God is even listening to his prayers, if God is doing anything about Israel's wickedness and corruption, and after God responds to his prayers and tells him, this is how I'm going to deal with it. Habakkuk lodges a second complaint beginning in verse 12. So let's look at verse 12 here. He knows, first, he knows God is listening now and working, but he's shocked and shook by what, by how God is working. All right, so up, I have it on the screen as well, and I will be using the ESV, but you can follow along in whatever translation you might have. Uh, verse 12 says this, uh, Habakkuk, again, taught, responding to God, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. You have, you have, oops, sorry, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. For who are, for you are, ugh, you who are pure, have purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked, speaking of Babylon, swallows up the man more righteous He's speaking of Israel, than he. All right, so here the prophet is struggling to understand what he knows about God's character and how God is working. He knows God is eternal and holy, right, from verse 12. And, and so he, he says right there in verse 12, he says, O Lord my God, you the Holy One, we shall not die. Um, you are from everlasting. At the beginning of the verse, he says, you are from everlasting. So he's like, He's not just saying, God, you're old, okay? He is saying, you've been around for a long time. So you know, God, you know everything going on, all right? He continues on to say, hey, God, you are holy as well. I know this. I know that you're holy. I know that your eyes are too pure to even look on evil. My question is, how is it that God could ordain the Babylonians to be, be Judah's judgment? How could God use a more wicked or a, a wickeder, if that's a word, if it's not, it should be, a wickeder nation like the Babylonians to punish a not quite as wicked nation, people of Israel? So our prophet's question from last week still stands. He says, how can an all-powerful 
pure and holy God allows sin to continue unchecked. Now, once again, his first complaint was, God, I see, I see sin in Israel, and people get away with it, and they, they're corrupt, and they victimize people, and you're not doing anything about it. I don't see you doing anything about it. Are, are you there? Are you working? Why is evil unpunished? Well, here in his second complaint, it comes again. I still have that initial, that initial thought, why is wickedness unpunished? All right, now you're bringing Babylon. They're wicked. Why don't they get punished? All right, you ever have your kids do that? <laughs> why don't they get punished? You know, what's their punishment? All right, being more concerned about those around them. <clears throat> have we ever struggled to understand or have we been perplexed in the way that God chooses to work? How often do we pray to God with an expectation on how he should respond? This was not the answer Habakkuk was looking for. I mean, do, do we not do this ourselves? I know I do. Oftentimes I pray and I'm expecting God to work in a certain way. All right. I pray, God, give me patience. And God gives me a situation where my kids are going nuts and uh, everything's going around. He's like, here, here's an opportunity for you to be patient, right? <laughs> or you're, you're like, God, I, I need more help. I need to, more opportunities to witness to somebody. I need to, I need to witness more. The next thing you know, you're on your way somewhere important. You're an hour from home and your car breaks down and you're on the side of the road. And you call the tow truck and the tow truck takes an hour and a half to get there. And now you're waiting and, and now all of a sudden you're in the car the car with the tow truck driver for an hour ride and and god suddenly nudges you and say hey you asked for this right here you go you get to talk to this guy here you know oftentimes when we come to god at least i know i do when i come to god asking for something it's usually i want that zap you know make me patient zap make me trust you more zap i want the zap response right the immediate response and sometimes oftentimes god gives us an an unexpected response and he gives us those opportunities to grow in those areas. This was Habakkuk's situation, too. He wanted God, God, take care of this, this problem, this wickedness in Israel. Maybe he didn't want the zap, but, you know, maybe bring a revival, bring a something. Well, God says, I'm bringing the Babylon um, to come and punish. And so in verse 14 through 16, as we continue on, Habakkuk goes on to describe what he knows about the wicked Babylonians. He says this, he says, you, God, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he brings, speaking of Babylon again, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he, again, Babylon, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. The prophet describes how God has made the people of the earth to be as fish of the sea, and the Babylonians are the fishers, and God is letting them have a heyday of fishing. All right, they pull them up as if with nets or with hooks, as verse 15 says. And it's interesting to note that ancient times, uh, captives were sometimes taken away with hooks in their noses, which was an intentionally painful and humiliating treatment. They treated others like animals to be used and to be consumed. That was the Babylonians. And they are rejoicing all the while. It brings them joy, Habakkuk says. It makes them glad. They are having a grand old time. And in verse 16 tells us that they, they take the credit for it. 
You know, that's the big thing. It's like, they're taking credit for this, all right? They sacrifice to their nets. In other words, they, they sacrifice to their own ability to conquer other people, their own might. He said that in his, or God said that in his initial response to Habakkuk's first complaint. You know what? These ta- their God is their might, all right? Their military might makes them wealthy, and they live the life of wickedness and luxury with no threat of repercussion or divine justice. And we see that as well in our day as well, right? We see people take the talents and the skills that God has given them, and they use them for their own means. They use them for their own gain, their own fame, without giving any credit to God and living without fear of divine judgment. Habakkuk saw this in the Babylonians, and it greatly confused him. And finally, in verse 17, he acknowledges that from his point of view, it looks like this will go on forever. Habakkuk 1.17 says, Is he, still talking about the Babylonians, then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? All right, God described the Babylonians last week. We talked about it in, in earlier in chapter 1 as a nation that was just going to sweep through the earth and conquer everybody. And Habakkuk looking at this saying, well, is this just going to go on forever? Are they just going to continue to do this? He looked like he was, at, you know, from his point of view, it looked like there was no turning back, like there was, there was no justice. This was never turning around. Habakkuk is struck in a dilemma. How can you have a God who is holy, just, righteous, loving, and all-powerful, and at the same time allow and even help an evil and wicked people like Babylon to rule and conquer with such violence and cruelty and with no acknowledgement of God giving to them all that they have? Instead, they are taking the credit. Do you understand Habakkuk's dilemma here? Do you kind of sympathize with him looking around? Do you see evil going on all around unchecked? Do you see those in the world using their talents, abilities, and wealth that God has given them for corrupt, immoral, and self-serving purposes? Do you struggle to reconcile what you know about God with what you see going on in this world in your life? I think that's one of the hardest ones for me. Like, I, I grew up in the church. I, I got saved at a young age. I grew up in Christianity. I grew up learning and knowing the Bible. And so I, it's, I think it's easier for me to, to read the Bible and say, yes, I believe that God is holy. Yes, I believe God is loving. God is just, you know, and all the attributes of God. I can believe those. The part that I struggle with is, okay, when I look at the world around me, how do those two fit together? I mean, the problem of evil, what, why is there so much evil? Why is there so much suffering if, if this is what God is like? And Habakkuk's in the same boat. He's like, okay, God, I know who you are. And he, he pronounces it here in his complaint. He's like, you're the holy one. You're eternal. You're from everlasting. All right, you are a good God. Why is this evil going on? Why is it unchecked? Why is it unpunished? And so what does Habakkuk do after this second complaint that raises that we seem to, hey, that we understand that. We get that, Habakkuk. We kind of understand it. Good question, you know. After Habakkuk voices this second complaint about how God is justified in using the evil empire to bring judgment on Judah, in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. This is what 
Habakkuk says, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk here decides he will eagerly wait God's reply. Now, whether this was a a literal tower on the wall of Jerusalem where Habakkuk was actually stationed to watch out for the coming invasion, the invasion might have been coming soon. Maybe he was posted there to watch for it. Or if it was just a a figurative tower describing Habakkuk's eager watching for the Lord's reply to come, Habakkuk shows us that he is confident that God will reply. So it's kind of a step forward. It's a a bit of a contrast between what we saw last week where Habakkuk was like, you know what, how long, O Lord? You know, I'm going to, am I going to keep yelling out to you, crying out to you? Are you there? Are you even listening? Are you doing anything? He comes to this point where he is more confident now. God is there. He is listening and he will respond. So last week we pointed out that sometimes we feel like Habakkuk, that God might not be listening or might not care. But let us take a lesson from him today that we can be confident that God does hear and like Habakkuk, we should wait expectantly for God's answer. And God's response does come beginning with verse number two. We see this, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. God begins by telling Habakkuk, write it down. All right, now when we hear hear the words, write it down, what does that indicate to us? It's important. This is probably important, right? When you parents, when you tell your kids, write something down, or, or maybe you have an employee and say, hey, write this down, or your employer tells you, write this down, it's usually not just for fun, you know, it's not the ABCs or one, two, three or whatever, you know, those things you already know. It's something that's extremely important. And you know, if God is telling you to write something down, it's going to be important. And so he tells Habakkuk to write this down and not just on a piece of paper. And he doesn't say carve it in the sand. All right, he says, get out a tablet and chisel it on this on a stone tablet. Now, when we think of stone tablets in the Bible, what's the first thing you think of? The Ten Commandments, right? The the laws that God gave to Moses, the initial laws God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai in order to rule his people, right? The do not steal, do not uh, murder, do not take other gods, you know, all those. Those were God's initial instructions to his people, his important laws. So So we can expect that if God told Habakkuk to get out some tablets, this is going to be important. All right, this is going to be big. And in verse 3, God tells the prophet why. He says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In other words, the words that I am about to give you may not be fulfilled quickly or in your timing, but they will come to pass. All right? And if you have young kids, you know the term wait for it is a killer. <laughs> all right, our, our, my sister invited all of my kids, except Riley, she was too young, but for a sleepover, her, and my kids, my brother's kids, 
both my brother's kids, uh, for a sleepover Friday night um, at my parents' house because she's a glutton for punishment. But um, <laughs> no, because she's like, hey, it's the end of the summer. Let's do this. Let's get all the kids together. Have them eat a million s'mores and see if we can get them to sleep sometime. So, so the kids knew this were, was coming up, and, and Shane struggles with this the most. He's like, if, if something big is coming up, wait for it does not help. All right, for us to say wait for it, you know, he's like, okay, is it time yet? Do we get to go to the grandma's house now? Is it time yet? You know, that sort of thing. All right, and God is saying here to Habakkuk, He says, write it down on a tablet because you might have to wait for it. All right, you might have to wait some time for this to come to pass, but it will come to pass. He says, it will surely come. And if we know anything about the promises of God, if he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. All right, not one of God's promises goes unfulfilled. And what we will see in what Habakkuk writes down is the judgment that God will place on Babylon in the future. But the very first thing that God has him chiseled down in stone is verse 4, which is a theme verse for the whole, of, whole book of Habakkuk. Verse 4 says this, Behold his soul, talking about Babylon, his soul, Babylon's soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Write it down in stone, Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by his faith. This is a foundational truth that is found throughout Scripture, right? The New Testament quotes this verse several times. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse in the book of Romans, the beginning of the uh, book of Romans. He says this, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the, the, the truth about Jesus. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Greek, to Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this verse in Habakkuk suggests that the upright person, the one who has put their faith in God, will maintain a lifestyle of integrity and faithfulness even when he does not understand God's ways. And let's be honest, this is extremely hard for us because we like to know how things work, right? And we like to plan things out. So imagine next week you, you walk into the auditorium and we've installed hover pews, right? No legs, they're just kind of hovering there. All right, how many of you would be quick to sit down on it before you know, okay, what's the weight capacity? I mean, you know, how many people can we fit on this pew? How is it actually being held up? All right, we'd, we'd probably want to know a little bit about it. Or how many of you are willing to just, and some of you might be, I know, willing to just, hey, kids, go get in the car. We're going on vacation. Where are we going? Oh, I don't know. I don't know yet. We'll find out when we get there. Uh, how long are we going to be gone? I don't know. We'll, we'll find out when we get back. Um, not many of us would be willing to do that. And yet, we like, and we like to know things. But God calls us to follow him in faith because because we don't always know how he is working or where he is taking us. And so Habakkuk in the same boat is told to chisel it down in stone, and we would do well to chisel it down in our hearts that the righteous will live by his faith, that we are called to live each and every day trusting that God sees the injustice, that God is listening to our prayers, 
that God is working in our lives and in the world because, believe it or not, God cares more about us and this world than we do. God cares more about justice, corruption, victims, and the evil that we do than we do. The righteous will live by his faith. The righteous person trusts in God as they endure evil and suffering in this world, and they will not be condemned when God acts to end injustice, but will live because of their faith and trust in him and his promises. So God tells Habakkuk, chisel this down. The righteous will live by his faith. Now, as we move forward into verses 6 through 20, what we are going to find here is God pronouncing this judgment on Babylon. Um, and, he, and he does, he responds to Habakkuk and he says, he gives five woes concerning judgment on Babylon. But first, let's, let's talk a bit about what a woe is, right? This is not a, like an act of surprise, like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Or it's not even a slowing of your horse, all right? In, in biblical times, the Bible pronounces a woe. It is carrying out a common judgment because of a certain sin. A coming judgment, sorry. It carries out a coming judgment because of a certain sin. It was used most frequently by the prophets, like Habakkuk and the others, uh, to warn Israel that if they do not repent and turn from their sin, judgment was coming. It is kind of like parents. You know, when we confront our kids... Sorry, I have a lot of parent illustrations here because I got four kids, and they range from 16 all the way down to three. So I got the big, vast range in there. But it's like when our kids misbehave um, or, or have an incomplete task. Now, we don't often speak in biblical terms or in the way of a biblical woe, like approaching them in their bedroom and saying, woe to you, child, who refuses to clean this messy room and with junk piled high and last night's dinner plate in the corner. Because of your, you have refused to clean this, justice will come swiftly in the unplugging of the Xbox or the turning off of your phone. Repent now and clean this room or judgment will come quickly. All right, we don't, we don't really say that. Some of us might think it, you know, might want to be saying it. But we do bring the problem to their attention and present the consequence if the task is not done or the behavior is not changed, right? And that is a bit of what a biblical woe is like, all right? God, was, God gives a warning or lays out the sin and promises either judgment if there is no repentance or a pronouncement of judgment because of no repentance. That's what a biblical woe is. But unlike God, as parents, we sometimes kind of waffle on carrying out our punishment or discipline, we might warn and warn again, and then we start this weird counting one, two, three thing. I know I've, I've, I've done that, all right, as if three is the magic number. And sometimes we even just give up and clean the room for them all the while saying, hey, next time, next time. <laughs> but when God promises judgment for sin, we can be sure it will come if there is no repentance. You know, Jesus also pronounced woes on the sins of his day. If you remember from Matthew chapter 11, he pronounced it on several cities, saying that if, if the stuff, the miracles and, and, and things that I've preached would have happened in Tyre and Sidon, 
They would have repented, but you guys didn't. All right, Jesus also, as he was the night um, before he was um, arrested, uh, a few days, actually, days before he was arrested, sorry, um, as he was speaking to the crowds and the Pharisees, he said several times, seven woes on the religious leaders of Jerusalem, saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for their hypocritical practices and their unjust ways and how they treated the people. All right, and so in God's response to Habakkuk, we see God pronounces five woes that would come to pass in judgment on the Babylonians. So let me just, we're going to kind of run through these uh, verses 6 all the way down through verse 20, the end of the chapter, and we're going to run through these, kind of summarize them, and then uh, draw some conclusions. All right, so Woe number one and number two, woe number one, verses six through eight, and number two, verses nine through 11, have to do with the corrupt and unjust economic practices for the Babylonians' theft and victimization of those they conquered. um, They would, in turn, be plundered and victimized. Look at verses, oh, I missed verse four for you, but, all right, um, verse six says, shall not all these take up their taunts against him? again, Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him, saying, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. All right, their theft and their plunder, their extortion would be brought to justice as God would in turn make them the victims of these things by those who had victimized them. All right, the second woe um, sees them using their amassed treasure and wealth to try to make themselves invulnerable. All right, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. In verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. The ESV study Bible notes this, that like the eagle that builds its nest in an inaccessible spot, the Babylonians attempted to build a city that was inaccessible to their enemies. The Babylonians wanted to build a place where no one could reach them, but God promised that they would reach and judge. And the ancient city of Babylon was, at the time, com- like to be compared to no other. They said they, it said that the walls were so thick and wide that a, a full chariot could could drive on top of it. They thought they made themselves impregnable. They they built up this huge fortification, but God promised that they would be reached and judged. All right, woe number three, beginning in verse 12, speaks of the Babylonians' violence and their slave labor. He says, Woe to him who builds a a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, the people's labor merely for fire? The nations weary themselves for nothing. So you guys are taking all these slaves, you're building this up, but it's for nothing. It's for fire. God's going to destroy it. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They use violence and slavery 
to build their massive cities and fortresses, but it would all be for nothing in the end. God said that it is all just fuel for the fire of judgment. God can cut short what people hope to be permanent. If we remember the the Tower of Babel, in Genesis chapter 11, mankind decides to build, they're like, they're say, they say what? Hey, let's, let's build a monument to ourselves, a tower that reaches the sky. This is after God instructed them to disperse throughout the earth and take care of the earth that he had created for them. Instead, mankind decided, you know what? Let's just see how great we can make ourselves. Let's all just stay here. Let's build this tower and see how much uh, profit we can make, how majestic we can be. And what happened? God comes to them and confuses their language so that they could not understand one another. And in Genesis eleven eight says this, So the Lord dispersed them from, from, their, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And yet here we are in Habakkuk, and still nation after nation continues to try to build something permanent to their own glory to display, to display their own power, their own greatness, and yet time after time, they all come to an end. All right, as we talked a little bit last week, the Assyrians were before this. They had the, a great massive empire. Nineveh was a great kingdom, a great capital city. Then you have the Babylonians, the, their capital of Babylon, their great empire. After them would come the Persians, who would conquer the known earth and have a great empire. Then after that, the Greeks, with Alexander the Great, right? He would conquer the known earth. Great empire. After that comes Rome, another great empire. And yet today, we can see remnants or ruins. I don't know if anybody's ever gone to see Rome and the, the ruins of the Colosseum and other things. We can see ruins of these places around the world. Places that their builders thought would last forever. God promised that judgment would come on Babylon no matter how impenetrable they thought that they were. All right, there's the fourth woe. He speaks to their perverseness and their manipulation. It says, Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show, and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as with the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the, be- for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The focus here, in short, is, that, is on the hu- inhumanity and the indignity of the conqueror, the Babylonians, to their subjects. He is picturing a drunkard given to his neighbor, giving neighbors wine to intoxicate them. By assisting them, uh, intoxicating others with wine, they display a practice similar to helping a drug addict maintain their habit. They, also, they are also condemned for their perverse sexual practices associated with this drunkenness. God would judge them and turn this against them, saying, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in God's hand from verse 16 is unlike their wine that makes them, them drunk, but is the, symbol, is the symbol of divine retribution or judgment similar to Jesus' words. If you remember Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
What did he say? He said, let this cup, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup symbolizes God's wrath, his judgment on wickedness. Jesus is willing to take the cup, symbolizing God's wrath, his judgment, that was meant for us, meant for sinners, and take on himself our judgment, take our punishment for us. The Babylonians thought that, though, would face God's judgment for their wickedness. That's what God is telling Habakkuk. And then finally, we have the fifth woe, where he addresses the idolatry of Babylon, of the Babylonians. Verse 18 says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for it makes trust, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Concerning these verses, Pastor Al Mohler says, The fifth woe highlights the stupidity of Babylonian idolatry. An idol is a human creation that leads people to false worship. It teaches nothing since it is dumb, it's speechless, and lifeless. People cover wood and stone with gold and silver, but their idol is worthless. Dealing with idolatry as the last, as the last woe may indicate that idolatry kind of undergirds all the abhorrent behaviors of the Babylonians. It contrasts, in contrast to breathless idols, God is in his holy temple, which is a way of saying that he rules from heaven. Let the Babylonians and all people recognize him. And so God gives these five woes to Habakkuk saying, I will judge Babylon. They will be judged for their wickedness, for every sin that we described here. I will judge them for that. Now, the practice described here in these five woes, the corruption, the injustice, the violence, the perversion, the idolatry, and so on, they're they're not unique to Babylon, are they? And so God's answer to Habakkuk becomes an answer to all generations. In fact, listen to these words that God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah. I have them up here. If, If at any time... I, God, declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. And so this is how God works with nations. This is how God works in, with nations in ancient times. All right, God was saying, hey, I, I am willing to, to um, accept those that repent. Remember Jonah's message to Nineveh. Nineveh, another wicked city, city. Jonah went to Nineveh and proclaimed that they would be destroyed if they didn't repent. <clears throat> and Nineveh repented. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... and and God relented of that, that destruction that he had set on them. The point being, God will punish, judge, sin. Every sin, all sin. 
Habakkuk, in his complaint, is concerned that Babylon is going to get away with their evil. But God tells Habakkuk, Babylon's day is coming. It is also true that one day all sin will be judged. <clears throat> now, as we wrap this up, let me just say there, there, there are preachers out there um, that are smarter and wiser than I am, and they're more in tune to like the pol- politi- politics of our country and other nations and countries around the world. And I'm sure that they could preach this passage and <clears throat> on how God could use a foreign nation for the wickedness and moral decay in our country. Or they might even preach that how God might use the government and the powers of our nation uh, to discipline the church as a whole because of the church that different denominations and so have wandered away or turned away from Scripture. And I'm sure those preachers, because of their vast theological and biblical understanding, would do a great job of preaching that um, because they understand the social and political climate. But that's, that's not me. Uh, and my main concern here today is how does this apply to North Anvil Bible Church? How does this apply to me? Because we could talk all day about our nation and the nation <clears throat> and other nations and their wickedness and moral uprightness and how we think God should deal with it or deal with the, <clears throat> the wickedness of our day. We could talk on and on, but I think more likely than not, we would end up leaving with nothing more than our opinion of what is going on out there, right? But the Bible and God's Word is always more concerned and more focused on what is going on in here, what is going on in our church, what is going on in our heart. Because yes, it may speak of the things out there, but it always, always, always is primarily concerned with the things in here. So how does this story from Habakkuk apply to us today? How do we, what, what lessons can we draw from this? Well, first of all, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you find some common ground with Habakkuk. Maybe you could say, yeah, I see all around me, I see sin, I see evilness, people mistreating other people, people taking advantage, victimizing other people, and they seem to get away with it. Well, the good news is that God sees it as well, and he has promised to take care of it, to punish it. The problem is he has promised to punish all evil and all sin, even the sin of every single person in this room. For he has also made it, he made it clear in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All of us are sinners, God's word says, and all our sin must be punished. But there is good news. That's the gospel. God sent his son Jesus to take the punishment for us. He took the punishment for our sins. And if we confess our sins to him and put our trust in him, in Jesus, and what he did for us, he promises to forgive our sin and cancel our debt. So that when, when justice comes on the wickedness of this world, God sees Jesus rather than us. God sees his son and says, hey, my punishment went on him. So if you're here today and you have not put your faith and trust in God, let me urge you to do so. Now, if you're here today and you are a Christian, there's, there's a lot we can take away from this passage, I think, uh, this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. The most obvious application, though, is that the righteous will live by his faith. 
even when there seems to be rampant evil all around, even when our prayers seem to go unanswered, even when what you know about God does not appear to match up with what we see him or think we see he's doing in this world. We must live by faith and trust that our all-knowing, all-powerful, promise-keeping good God will do what's right. And we can trust him to take care of us even in the midst of a wicked and evil society. And so as Habakkuk learns today, God does take care of wickedness. He does take care of evil in his timing. And as we, next week, we're going to wrap it up and we'll, we'll cover chapter three next week. Habakkuk has one more response back to God and we'll see. So what has this conversation taught him? What has this conversation done to Habakkuk? And we'll look at that next week. But this week, let me encourage you and remind you again and again, the righteous God's people must live by faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.